possible because Adam and Eve were in the garden with God. They were in his presence. In his presence is our provision. And then uh, it says that Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord, and you no doubt know this story. And so they were exiled. Now you have to remember that Luke 3.38 describes, as talks about the ancestors of Christ, and it describes, uh, says, and Seth was the son of Adam, and Adam was the son of God. Adam was the son of God. They were family. And Adam and Eve dwelt together with God as Father. And all the provision that they needed was in the garden. But when they sinned, Luke 3.38, this Son of God was exiled. They were sent out of the garden, and they lost communion. No longer could they hear the voice of God in the cool of the day. They lost identity, no longer a confidence that God is Father, and they lost provision. Do you remember the verse um, in Genesis 3.19, after they were driven out of the garden, you, you no longer have these fruit trees uh, and provision available, but now he says, Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your bread. So there was much to lose in the exile from the presence of God. Now, I don't know of any eating with God until the covenant is made between God and Israel in the book of Exodus. Um, eating in God's presence was part of Adam and Eve's privilege in the garden. Hearing his voice, eating, his, eating from the fruit of the trees, walking with him, being his family. But then after their sin and their exile, I don't know where God ate with anyone until you get to Exodus chapter 24. Let's go to Exodus chapter 24. The book of Exodus and chapter 24. <clears throat> is this working? It is? Okay. Um, just, if somebody was to ask you, where do you find the Ten Commandments? Uh, just for your information, you find it in Exodus chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through uh, 17. Uh, and the reason I say that is because Exodus 20, verses 1 to 17, is the Ten Commandments. And then Exodus 21 and 22 and 23 are explanations and applications of those Ten Commandments. So if anybody ever says, where's the Ten Commandments? Well, it's in Exodus 20. 
Well, what's 21, 22, and 23? Well, those are illustrations, applications of those Ten Commandments. Now, what is in 24? This is where Moses takes what is called the the Book of the Covenant, and you find that phrase in uh, Exodus chapter 24 and verse 7. He took the Book of the Covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. What is that Book of the Covenant? That's Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments and 21, 22, and 23 with its applications summed up in one scroll and he read that book or scroll of the covenant in the hearing of the people. That's the book of the covenant. Now remember that this is after they have received these words, these commandments, and now they are invited to accept this as a covenant with God. Because notice chapter 24, verse 1 in Exodus. Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the elders, and worship from afar. In other words, don't get too close. In verse 2, Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Keep your distance. But now, he reads the book of the covenant, and they offer a sacrifice... They shed the blood of an ox or a lamb. And it says in Exodus 24 and verse 6 that Moses took the blood and he took half of the blood and he threw it on the altar. Now that altar uh, symbolized the presence of God. That's, That's where you go to God. So he threw half the blood on the altar. Then, what did he do with the other half of the blood? Verse 8, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. So he took half the blood of the sacrifice, put it on the altar, the other half which represented God. The other half he put it on the people so that they, in essence, shared one blood thus making them a family. That's why one blood on both the altar or God's presence and the people, thus making them one blood, thus making them one family, thus making them one, having one identity. That's why Israel is, St. Chronicles 7.14, if my people called by my name, well, why are they called by his name in the Old Testament? Because they are joined to him as his family once again, you see, through that old covenant. And they've made a sacrifice. This is why when a couple are married, they take one name. And by the way, what what do you do after you have a marriage ceremony? We've done a lot of marriages over the years, and they always do the same thing. What do they do? They have a reception. They go out and they eat, and they drink. 
Look at, uh, and this is what they do. They make this covenant. Exodus 8, he took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord made with you. And then verse 9, Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 elders went up. Here they're not, now they're not said, it's not said keep your distance, but now you can come up. And he says um, that verse 11 or verse 10, they saw the God of Israel. And I have no idea how to explain it. They saw the God of Israel, verse 10. And verse 11, he did not lay his hand on them, but they beheld God and what? Ate and drank. Okay, seeing God is one thing, and saying, let's eat, let's drink. In his presence. See, this is phenomenal. And how is it that they can do this? Because they've entered a covenant. Now, you don't have to keep your distance. Now you can come near. We're family. Now we can eat and drink together. This is the reception. And then what did God do after this? I, and I, I told my son this before he got married. He didn't really believe me, but I said, Bud, if you get married, you have to have a house. Right? Unless you're going to live with mom and dad, and that's a no-no. So what does God do in the next chapter? It says... Build a tabernacle. And in Exodus 25, he says, I want you to build me, take up this contribution, take up these offerings, everyone contribute, and build, chapter 25, verse 8, a sanctuary or a house or a tabernacle that I may dwell in their midst. Now we're going to live together. Put put your house together because we're going to live together and I'm going to... I'm going to stay with you in this house. Now, obviously, you can't get two million people into this tabernacle. So what God did is make representatives, and he said, uh, I put my, after, after he says, build the house, then he says, and here's what, how I want you to put my throne. My throne's going to be in there. But the, ne- the very first thing after God builds his house and installs his throne, what's the first thing he puts out in front of him? He has a place for his throne and his presence where he stays permanently with them in their midst. Then right outside that veil is a table. It was called, and you put 12 loaves of bread or 12 cakes of bread on this for the 12 tribes of Israel, which was called the bread of his presence. King James says the show bread. But really, the word presence in Hebrew is, the, is my face. It's the bread that proves my face is toward you. I am with you. I am providing for you. This is like the Garden of Eden restored. You are Adam permitted back into paradise. Here's the proof. You're my family. I live with you. I provide for you. Sit at my table. Eat again in my presence. That was never to be altered. 
In fact, uh, the the verse that has to do with the bread says Leviticus 24, 8, this bread is to be placed before the Lord week after week on behalf of the Israelites. Notice that, on behalf of, on their behalf. What, why for their sake? So it can be a sign of the covenant. I made a covenant with you. I am faithful to that covenant. I said that I would be your God. I've asked you to be my people. Now here's the sign, the evidence that I am with you. All you got to do is go and look at that table. There's got bread on it. Sign of communion. Sign of eating with God. Union, covenant union, and family communion. What Adam lost, you have regained. What a great symbol of God and his love for those people and the permanence of his fatherliness was given in that table with bread on it. What a wonderful symbol of God. And this, of course, is... What you get, too, uh, when Jesus comes, he's always eating with sinners. And they would get mad at, why are you eating with sinners? He's a friend of sinners and Republicans. Who who would do that? And and so this, this tabernacle prevailed. And when Solomon built the temple, they just moved everything over into the temple and uh, still had the table and the bread on it, and, it, and, and they, re, they changed it every week so, so it wouldn't just totally decay. And it was a constant symbol of the sign of the covenant that God made. Now, if you know, if you've read the Old Testament, you know the Old Testament ends in failure. It ends in judgment. It ends by Israel. This, this was put up originally around 1,500 years before Christ. And over the centuries, Israel began to fall into idolatry and disobedience. And they actually uh, began to bring idols into the temple. And instead of worshiping the true God, they violated the covenant, acted not like he was their family, but he was their enemy. And after 1,500 years of this, actually... uh, Back in Jeremiah's day, God predicted, uh, this is Jeremiah 7. Um, he said, I, because you're breaking this covenant, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I'm going to have to start over. I'm going to make a new covenant. It's not, he says, not like the covenant I made with the fathers when I took them out of Egypt, because they broke that covenant. They were unfaithful to that. Though I was a husband to them, I married them. I was in covenant with them. I was one with them. They were my family. So he says, I'm going to have to start a new covenant. And just, I I brought these. Let me see if I can just put these up quickly because I don't want to dwell on this long, but but some of you have heard me talk about 70 A.D. and the destruction of Jerusalem and the theological significance of it. Um, 
And one of the things that happened, uh, the Romans came in and the generation of, of the first century Christians, and Jesus predicted this, by the way, in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, that the Romans would come, that they would destroy, not one stone would be left standing on another of the temple, and it's, and it's true today. It's not there. There's no temple there today. And he said that the Romans would come and take away the temple, destroy the city. They destroyed the temple and actually used the stones to build what is today, you still see the Colosseum in Rome. That's what the Romans did. The Roman general's name was Titus. Well, in Rome, they built a monument to Titus. This is called the Arch of Titus. And if you go to Rome, you can see it today. The Arch of Titus. It's a huge thing. And uh, let me back up. And it has little, I don't know if you call those uh, frescoes or reliefs or what you call those. It has pictures that are carved into its sides. And this, it was done in honor of Titus by the Romans. And this is supposed to be Titus. This, this thing is, has endured for 2,000 years, nearly 2,000 years. And it's still, you can see Titus riding into Rome with his victory over the Jewish people in 70 A.D., and there he is. But the thing I wanted you to see was they, one of the carvings on the Ark of Titus is this right here. The soldiers following Titus into Rome after the victory. Here are the soldiers. You see all that? That's the menorah came right out of the temple. And do you know what that is? It's the table. It's the table. The symbol, the sign of the covenant, the sign of God's presence. And it was hauled off by the Romans never to be seen again. So that the Israelites mourned because they said, Is God gone? Is there never to be a people who are in covenant with Him? Is there no table that gives illustration that He is our Father and we are His family? There is a table. There is a table, and it's right there. This is worth losing your dignity over. I'm telling you. If what I am saying to you is true, this is shouting ground right here. Jason, I want to see you shouting, running around, talking in tongues. Oh, my goodness, dear people. Look at this. 
when the hour came and Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he took the bread. He gave thanks and said, this is the new covenant. I am telling you, that's the paradise of God opened for sinners once again. There's the tabernacle. Here's the tabernacle. There's the proof that he dwells among us. And that makes this room, the upper room, and you, his disciples, who can sit at the table with him this day. What glory, what privilege in fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you tell me we're not rich. So what this, what this does, this brings us back into paradise. We're like Adam in the garden. This is the tabernacle. We're like priests in the holy place. This is the Passover. We're like disciples in the upper room. Fellowship is restored. We are the family of God. And our needs are met. Quickly, the holy table means that we receive this fellowship. It means when you come, when you sit at someone's table, what does that mean? That means you're going to fellowship with them. You're going to enjoy them. They're going to enjoy you. You're going to share information. You're going to become close. What do you do when you have a girlfriend you want to get to know her? Take her out to eat. What do you do when you want to impress your pastor? Out back. It means when you come to the table, it also means you're coming to the covenant. You know, what would you think of a bride who said to her groom, I, we're supposed to get married next week on Saturday. Is it 3 o'clock? Uh, yes, honey, it's 3 o'clock. She, and she says, I, I can't make the marriage but I'll be there for the reception. <clears throat> See, it's very simple. Who wouldn't want to enter covenant with the God of heaven? This is, this is entering covenant with God. One blood, through the blood of Christ, we share a family bond that is closer than any superficial promise that we've made on earth. And then third, it means we're back to the garden. We got the provision. Hallelujah. Man, I'm telling you, some of us need provision this morning. Amen? Don't y'all need God to say, oh. And look, some of it's like this. And I give you this illustration because I think this exactly is what we need. Because, see, you, you don't have money in the bank, right? Right, Chad? You don't have money in the bank. And so you think, oh, man, I'm, I'm bad. 
wish I had some money to fall back on. These three little boys were going to the fair, and while they were walking on the grounds of the state fair, one of them, they, they saw each other and they ran up to each other, and one of them said, uh, my daddy gave me $30 to spend at the fair. He said, man, I'm going to have fun doing the, going on these rides. The other little boy said, well, my daddy gave me $40 to spend at the fair. So he said, I'm going to have a lot of fun. I'm going to get some cotton candy. They turned to the other little boy, the third one, and said, how much did your daddy give you? What did you bring? And he said, I didn't bring any money, but I brought my daddy. <laughs> you get that? And you may explain that to him on the way home. I don't know. I didn't bring a lot. But if I can have my father, I don't need to bring anything. I'll just join my poverty to his generosity and my needs will be met. Amen. And that's what this table proves. You don't have money in the bank, but you got the father. You got the father. You're in his family. He'll take care of you. That's what that table proves today. Jason, would you include...